Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 305 of the Armin Show podcast, where it has just kept getting better and better. Can't stop, won't stop. On this episode, we have the author of a book that is one of the coolest looking books I have seen, and the cover <laughs> is very smooth, and it's specifically in the part that is colorful, which I've never seen on a book before. And so I've put my finger across it. And it actually relates to some of the concepts in the book, funny enough. So that makes sense and very thoughtful there. The author of this book, which is called The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain, is Annie Murphy Paul. And she joins us on this episode of the show. Welcome, Annie. Hi, Armin. I'm really glad to be here. I am glad to have you here. It's so nice. The colors. I like colors. What can I say? Now, before we get into the book, you are a science writer, mm -hmm. which is a specific category of writing that doesn't include most popular writing, which is fiction and whatnot. How did you get into the category of science writing in the first place? Well, I guess you could say because I am really interested in science, but I'm not equipped or not... Um suited for her actually doing science. And I say that because I know from my friends who are scientists that there's a lot that goes into designing the experiment and um, making sure the experiment works in the way it's supposed to and waiting for the results. And I'm a bit of an impatient person. I like, I like just to read about the results. I like to go right, right to the findings. And so I don't think I would have the patience to be a scientist, but um, when you're a science writer, the findings, uh, of course, you write a bit about the process as well, but you, you do get to go right to the findings and you do get to kind of, you know, skim the journals for what's interesting to you and write about that. And that's my favorite part of, of being a science writer is that I really range across a lot of disciplines. I mostly write about psychology, but this most recent project, The Extended Mind, had me reading the literature in philosophy and physiology and anthropology and neuroscience and trying to pull that all together into a coherent account. And that was a really exciting challenge for me as a science writer. This makes sense. I relate on these points you're describing. I've always liked the results of science and what we can take from it, but I don't really want to pour something from a graduated cylinder into a tube <laughs> and then centrifuge exactly. or whatever yeah. it might be. I'm with you there. <laughs> so there's some, and also the networking of ideas. I like that concept too. Connecting some of us think in a network way, whereas some individuals mm. are more linear. Mm. And so it would be a waste of our networking abilities. To <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. You have to know what your strengths are. Mm -hmm. Now, also on the internet, which is super popular these days, you have had speeches where you discussed topics in front of an audience, like in TED. Mm -hmm. and informed people about how learning happens even before people are born. And you also talk about us and how we get smarter. Yes. You like giving speeches. And what are your plans for speaking in general? Will you be continuing yeah. that? You know, I would say that I really like sharing what I've learned with people. I'm not um, a natural public speaker so much as I am. I'm not as suited to that as I would say that I'm suited to writing. I mean, my really my favorite thing to do is to <laughs> be alone, uh, you know, working away at my computer and thinking the big ideas and and wrestling with the words, you know, making the words um, 
come together in the way that I, that I imagine that they should. And that to me is the, the challenge and the um, opportunity of science writing that I really enjoy. But then, you know, it is important for science writers and scientists to get out there and inform the public. And so I do do a fair amount of speaking. I, I find that the most enjoyable part and the, often the most fruitful part of, of those kinds of engagements are the question and answer sessions that happen afterwards. I really like hearing what people's questions are, trying to help them understand what they're confused about or what they don't yet know. Um, you know, I, I, I think I would say I do the speaking part in order to get the information across, but it's really the creative part of figuring out how to construct that message that is the most fun for me. Makes sense. The message has to be clear or else it'll be lost into thin air, like a lot mm -hmm. has been as far as content over decades or generations. Mm. Now, this book connects to something I'm very interested in, which is thinking. Mm -hmm. I always value people who are using their prefrontal cortex, processing, trying to figure mm. out things, progressing in some way, which is not a majority of people, I'd say. I'd say a good amount of people are okay with not too much thinking and <laughs> working with the world as it is. But it is nice for growth to use thinking and also to supplement it with a variety of things that are out there, which I like that you describe because I'm applying these things on a regular basis and you actually separated them into elements. Mm. Mm. You talk about thinking in terms of <clears throat> bodies, gestures, movements, sensation, mm -hmm. the spaces you're in, mm -hmm. the people around. Right. This is a big deal because <laughs> I've noticed if yes. I don't involve all the elements you've described here, my thoughts will be like some small piece of what I would have come up with otherwise. Exactly. In the first, mm -hmm. Go on. In the first section, we have thinking with our bodies, which is the physical element of this. How do we think with our bodies? How can sensations make us think more openly? Yes. Yeah, well, I, I just want to say I love what you said just there, Armin, that if you don't involve all those outside the brain resources, the body spaces, other people, your thoughts are much smaller than they would have been otherwise. I just that was really well put because that's exactly what I'm trying to get across in the book. That these that our brains there the brain is an amazing organ. You know, we we all hear that all the time from science, from science writers who write about the brain. And and it is, but it also is is limited. It's limited in what it can do because it is this biological organ that evolved to do some things that are quite different from what we actually ask it to do these days in our in our modern knowledge-centric world. So we can enhance the brain's abilities and capacities by reaching outside the brain and bringing in these other resources. And as you mentioned, a really major one of those is the body. And the body can help us think or extend our thinking in a, a few different ways. One is the capacity for what's called interoception. And that is a sort of fancy word that just means like our gut feelings, the feelings that arise from within our body. And those feelings um, act as a kind of nudge, like almost like somebody tugging at your sleeve saying, hey, pay attention to this, you know, and it's, it's not necessarily a top down cerebral kind of process. It's a bottom up, you know, the body is sending these signals from all these different places within the body. And you, you know that when 
you're nervous, for example, and you feel that, um, that sense in your, in your stomach, or, um, when you feel full of pride and you have that swelling sense in your, in your chest. And those are signals that can really inform our thinking and deepen our thinking. But in our culture, because we tend to separate mind and body and to denigrate the body's contributions, we often ignore those or we push them aside, or we think that real thinking and serious thinking involves um, ignoring the body's cues rather than attending to them and bringing them into the thinking process. So that's, that's a shift I'd like to see, you know, an, a, res, a growing respect for the contributions that the body can make to, to our thinking. And, you know, another way that that can happen is, as you mentioned, through movement and gesture, which is a kind of forms, they, those things form a kind of loop with our thinking, you know, we can, our hands often are expressing ideas that we can't yet put into words. And yet when we express them spatially with our hands, we can use that sort of self-generated information to inform our verbal account of what we're thinking. So it becomes this loop where our gestures inform our thinking and our thinking informs our gestures. And if we cut that off by, you know, discouraging gesture or thinking that we shouldn't be moving around quite so much, we're really inhibiting our own, we're impeding our own thinking. Mm -hmm. I, I've noticed that if I watch a video and there is no gestures, it is way more limited. Mm -hmm. Even if you have somebody doing sign language on the side that has, mm. that you don't even know sign language, it makes it more interesting because you can tell there's a lot of movement and description happening. It makes your think mind right. think a bit yeah. more, right? If I don't even know sign language, I'm like, that's cool. That seems like there's more going on here. <laughs> yes. I love watching sign language interpreters. I think the gestures are so beautiful and the fact that they have so much meaning is really incredible. And yeah, I think there, I, there are actually studies that show that many instructional videos, they tend to show just sort of like a talking head. Like there's, there's no hands are not visible in the video. And when hands convey so much information outside of what's being said, that's a real loss. And I think that's another way in which, you know, instructors and teachers, and even those of us who are just on a zoom call can improve our communication and even our own thinking processes by gesturing more and making sure that our gestures are visible to others. One time on an episode of the funny show, Nathan, for you, he had this panel that told him to make gestures when he was talking and he would be more well-liked. And so he made these <laughs> grand gestures when he was talking and the people, the like business owners he talked to liked uh -huh. him way more. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> the panel also liked him. Everybody liked him way more. Mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. kind of looked like he was joking as he was doing it, but actually it was well-received. That's really, there. that's really interesting. You know, I write about research in the book that suggests that entrepreneurs who are pitching potential investors on their ventures, um, they, they're more likely to, to get funding for their ventures if they are skillful in their use of gestures, in part because gestures create a kind of imaginary world. Like you can kind of almost imagine this thing, this product or this service that an entrepreneur is, is saying, this is what I'm going to create. But, but the, the spatial element of gestures makes it seem almost real, you know? And so they're, they're better able to persuade investors of their vision when they use gestures skillfully. So maybe that show wasn't so far off. This is true. Sometimes making a commentary that's meant to be funny can bring up something that is actually there for most people. <laughs> exactly. That's very true. That's very true.
I'll probably be using. Frankly, I'm going to use gestures right now. The Armin show now involves <laughs> gestures on a regular basis. Yes, Things are going I... to be more clear, and <laughs> I'm going to do more pointing also at random. I, I like to do that sometimes, like there's an audience there. So. Right. <laughs> Thank right. you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Classic. <laughs> now, it, it's very good, by the way. The gener the larger concept <laughs> of the book uh, will lead to more, especially for creative people, this is a big deal because... Mm not doing these things is a huge loss because creativity compounds mm -hmm. on itself over time. Mm -hmm. So whatever, if it's a writer or a video maker or artist, you have more works and they connect to each other and then you know more people and they connect. And then uh, a little increase in your output or content is a huge amount in compounding like five years later. So mm -hmm. that's the way I think that's about true. it. As a creative yeah, industry. yeah, yeah. Now, no, I think I think there is a lot in the extended mind theory for for creative people. Um, you know, sticking with the body, there's this notion uh, that um, the way we move primes our brain for certain kinds of thinking, and and that movement in general is kind of a loose uh, metaphor for dynamic fluid, creative thinking. And so rather than sitting still at when we're brainstorming or trying to come up with a creative idea, it's much, it's a much better idea to be moving, to be walking, to be, um, my personal favorite riding, riding my bike. I get my best ideas when I'm riding my bike. And I really think there's something about this dynamic forward motion that puts you in a state of mind that is more conducive to having creative thoughts. Mm -hmm. The value of that for flow. The counter to that, it makes me think of, I'd say there's a lot of individuals who are not as creative or more, they'd almost be opposed to creativity in that category. They'd say this is comical. And that crowd would, um, if put through like deep breathing exercises and walking in nature, would almost be compelled towards that direction. But if they mm. breathe very lightly and mm. um, don't move out into different uh, scenery then it's easier to push out the world of flow because mm. you're not having mm. flow within. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I like to think in terms of, you know, what, what thoughts are we not having because we're not engaging these outside the brain resources. There are thoughts that are literally unthinkable unless we draw on these external resources. So, um, so that's sort of an exciting element of, of the, of the extended mind and applying the extended mind that like, what ideas could we have that, that, you know, in our sitting still and alone in our rooms, we probably, probably wouldn't occur to us. Yes. Now that leads to the second section, which is about surroundings, mm -hmm. scenery, visual world. As you mentioned in the book, a third of our brain processing is for the visual cortex, mm -hmm. which that fact enough is uh, to convince uh, that fact alone is enough to convince a lot of people that uh, having visual variety and stimulus can uh, compel the brain to have thoughts. Mm -hmm. What is good about natural environments like a prairie? Yeah, you know, I think we, a lot of us have a sense already that being in nature makes us feel good. But what's interesting is that scientists have begun to elucidate the the mechanisms by which nature has an effect on our cognitions and on our cognition and on our emotions. And what it comes down to really was that 
is that um, we as as biological creatures evolved in the outdoors, you know, that our, our sort of the life where we live inside or, or inside cars, you know, and, and homes most of the time is relatively new. And so our, our sensory faculties are really tuned to the kind of sensory information that we uh, encounter in, in nature, you know, the, the sharp edges and the fast movements and the, um, loud sounds of like urban settings and, and of our interior settings, they're actually sort of draining for us to, to experience all the time. And when we go outside, there's a whole different kind of sensory experience that we have, you know, psychologists call it soft fascination, which I think people will recognize if you've ever sort of lost yourself in watching the, the waves in the ocean or, or looking at the wind rustling the, the leaves of the trees, there's a kind of relaxed state that the brain enters when it's in nature. And that actually allows us to replenish our attention, our stores of, of attention and focus, which get depleted when we're doing this very focused intellectual work, or when we are in these kinds of settings that I'm talking about that are really not natural, not suited to our, our uh, biological background. So, um, so I, I have applied this in my own life. I really try to get outside every day. And that can be combined with the other thing we were talking about, the importance of, of movement and um, just the bit moving, being outside, not focusing on anything in particular, which is again, a real shift from the way that we operate when we're inside focusing very keenly on a piece of paper or on our screen. You know, it's a completely different kind of experience that allows us to replenish our attentional stores and return to our work with greater attention and focus. It's sort of like our time outside and walking and running and variety is the expansion part where all mm. the ideas can come into play and the flow is there. Mm. And then if we're, let's say, writing and we're working on a project, now it's the consolidation part where everything that we were inspired by now yes. can come together in an organized way. Yeah. Without, without the two, we, we won't have a great project. Right, that's right. You really need the oscillation between the two. The, the flow. It's sinusoidal as far as graphs go. And this is a gesture for everybody. It's sinusoidal. Yes. First. <laughs> yes. Yes. Good word. As I say to my kids, good word. Good mm. word. Use that one. Yeah. It made me think also in a future episode, I might use background of the plants outside at some point because mm. that'll mm. be better for mm. variation versus solid colored wall. Both are good, but a little yeah. bit better. Yeah. Now, what does it mean to this one? I just like the title thinking with the space of ideas. So what does that mean? Space what of ideas. Mean? Yes. What that means is um, getting our thoughts, our mental contents out of our heads and putting them into the, into the space of the world. And that can mean putting them onto a piece of paper. It can mean putting them onto post-it notes that you then arrange and rearrange. It can mean making a model of, of, of the problem that you're trying to solve or the issue you're trying to work on um, and interacting with it in a physical way. And all of this is meant to address the fact that, again, the human brain didn't evolve to think about highly abstract theoretical ideas. It really evolved to manipulate physical objects in the real world. And the more we can turn our ideas into objects, in a sense, the more we can work with them in a way that produces insight and allows us to solve problems. 
this book right here is an object that has a lot of insight <laughs> and solving problems in it. That did sure. you did you know of the individual David Allen and his concept of getting things done? Did that connect with this? Yeah. Have you heard of that? Yeah, you know, there's so many uh connections between his work and my work, and that's no no coincidence because I'm so interested in and concerned with cognitive load and uh, and um offloading our mental uh, burden so that we can engage in those higher level cognitive activities of reflection and analysis and not just, you know, remembering and keeping track of stuff. And of course, that's, as I understand it, what the whole system is based on and why it really works so brilliantly, because we're all doing, we're doing too much in our heads for the most part. We all try to do too much in our heads when really we'd be thinking much more efficiently and effectively if we offloaded that those mental contents whenever possible. And that seems to be the genius of David Allen's system. I remember about 10 years ago, it was super duper popular. And then I feel like a few people used his system and have succeeded greatly. And mm -hmm. then his system is mm -hmm. no longer as popular, but those mm -hmm. few people, it's like a- It changed their lives. That, yeah, <laughs> they used yeah. and they've had inbox zero for the decade now or something like oh, that. Oh boy, yeah, that's a dream for me, not happening yet. I used to see that and not understand it because I wasn't getting emails, but that's before I really <laughs> put it in out contacts. I'm like, this is not difficult. <laughs> that's <laughs> like, really funny. That's one way to do it. Like Just don't get any emails. <laughs> zero. I removed these two, but they were always. <laughs> that's too funny. <laughs> they would have like 180 or something or what, some yeah. huge number. I never got that many, so I, I couldn't get back to zero. From, you have to but now something. it's now it's not like that right you're just like everybody <laughs> you're just like everybody else with an overflowing inbox it, there's more activity than at that time that's true yeah sometimes you, you have to look at taking the right tips because some uh, person with like a million followers but eight years ago will be like oh i have to manage all my thousands of comments and then you go to your comments and you have two comments you're like i, I can manage this <laughs> yeah yeah well better you know to have all that time to yourself to think of brilliant ideas right instead of going through your email and going through your messages mm -hmm. I think. and then build up the thing and eventually when it's cool suddenly mm -hmm. there's all these comments and you're like oh great this is what was referred to <laughs> that's funny right it's like patterns that go on now in the third part of the book which is divided into three even parts with three parts each which is great i always look at the breakdown of books which is cool mm. it is relationships which i'm very oriented with as far as people mm -hmm. it's a big deal to me people is probably my most relevant category that I focus on. <laughs> yeah, people are important for sure. <laughs> to me, they're like the most interesting thing on the whole planet more than oh, like- Oh yeah, I agree. Structures or rivers are cool, but like the, if I look at a river and I look at it a month later, it didn't do much. Like it's still just, a, but a person, things could have happened, there's change that can occur. Mm. How can we connect with people who can push us in some direction in the category of experts? Maybe yes. Maybe field or in general. Yes. So, you know, our whole education system and our workplace training system is based on the idea of experts teaching novices. But there's a problem, which is that true experts, they've automatized their knowledge. They know it so well. It's such second nature to them that they actually are, in many cases, incapable of really explaining it in a way that a novice can understand because a novice hasn't constructed all those internal um, neural structures that that um, that characterize the the mind of an expert. So, and that's a problem, especially these days, because you know if you think about a traditional apprenticeship where 
say a blacksmith or a tailor was showing a, an apprentice how to do what they do, they could just demonstrate it. They could show them and there was something to see. But now, of course, so much of our work is knowledge work. And so we need to find a way to, to um, as experts, make ourselves more legible models to novices so that they know what's going on in our heads and not just, you know, with our with our hands as it was in the old days. And so there's an idea within um, education research called a cognitive apprenticeship, which is, you know, actually helping a novice understand what the mental processes are in expertise. And so in that, in that chapter uh, on thinking with experts, I talk about some ways that experts can make their, what they know um, more accessible to a novice. And a lot of that involves a kind of empathy, you know, a kind of putting yourself in the shoes of a novice. Um, and sometimes in some cases, actually remembering what it was like to be a beginner yourself. And studies have shown that having experiences that bring you back to your beginner days when you were still kind of clumsy and figuring things out that makes you more empathetic and more um, effective as a teacher for beginners, which I think is really interesting. Um, and then there's some techniques that I, I write about, like um, there's a really legendary math teacher named John Mighton, who's had incredible success teaching kids math, even kids who had really struggled with math before. And what he does is he breaks, he breaks it down, the concepts and the procedures, and he breaks it down again and again into not just steps, but micro steps. And because what an, an, an expert often doesn't realize is that they have what memory experts call, memory researchers call chunks. They have, they have organized their, their knowledge into chunks. And if you present a chunk like that to a novice, they're bewildered because they haven't, they haven't um, yet learned all the, the, the constitutive elements in that, in that chunk, which the chunk allows the expert to think in a very efficient way, but to a novice, it's all, it's totally, um, opaque. So what an expert needs to do when they're teaching a novice is break it down, break it down again, again, until it's just a tiny step. And not only does that help the novice understand what would otherwise be this, you know, confusing agglomeration of information, it also builds their confidence as they master one small step and another and another, they get the feeling, oh, I, I can do this. Um, and that's, I think, where a lot of kids get stuck in math. They miss something. They don't understand something. And math is so relentlessly cumulative that if they miss something early on, they may really struggle ever after to, to master, um, to master what they're, they should be doing in math class. The pieces would not all be there. Right. I think of like a tennis player who has gotten really good so that it's on autopilot when they do a mm -hmm. swing. And mm -hmm. if they're telling a new player just kind of go with the flow and do <laughs> right it. exactly just it do it like look, this right it doesn't look like yours when i do it <laughs> right 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 and uh you know research has shown that experts when you even when you ask them please explain what you're doing they often will leave out steps they will they just won't um it's very hard for them to give a full account of what they what they're doing that that knowledge has become almost invisible to themselves because they've learned it they've overlearned it to such an extent you know my mind just made an interesting connection there it's not that different in some ways than really big companies that when they get to that point that they're huge not only do they kind of squish little companies but 
they almost can't relate with like what it's like to be a little company so they like yeah uh, i called it like you go to the second floor and then you pull the ladder up from the first floor and nobody mm. can get to the second floor yeah it's almost not even purposeful maybe partially but maybe not fully because i'm already here i have to work on new expertise and then right. uh, these down here are like how do i, how right. do I make it up there right yeah, that again is a kind of failure of empathy, I would say, to remember what it was like when you weren't the big guy. Empathy is a big one. It makes mm -hmm. me think of Gary Vaynerchuk. He always talks about empathy and being empathetic to mm -hmm. people and audiences. It's a, it's a great skill to have. Yes. Now, those are experts. One other set of people is peers, your people around yes. you. Yes. Is this just your acquaintances or your close friends what's the value of your peer group is there any value or should you just kick them out and work with great <laughs> great the there? great minds yeah. no the peers are actually really important in fact i'm thinking of this study that suggested that that found that um graduate students in the sciences um what really determined their their progress in becoming um professional scientists and learning to think like a scientist was not the quality of the uh, mentorship that they received from their superiors, but the quality of their relationships and their interactions with their peers, with the other graduate students that they were working with in the lab. And, you know, a peer is a really important resource because they are at the same level as, as you. They are someone who naturally has empathy for where you are because they're at the same place. And what's interesting and important about peer relationships is that when we, and, and about social interactions more generally, is that when we engage in, a, in social interactions, there are cognitive processes that get activated that remain dormant when we're just thinking by ourselves. So when we do things like telling stories or engaging in debate and argument or teaching other people, there are these, the, the social nature of those interactions sort of triggers these mental processes that allow us to think better. And human beings, again, I, you know, I keep coming back to how we evolved and what, what our nature is as, as human beings, but we we're fundamentally social creatures. And the idea that thinking should happen when we're alone in a room is just, it's very, it's very unnatural and it's very, um, it's suboptimal in terms of producing the best thinking. The best thinking happens with other people. People around us. Mm -hmm. You make me think of the range. Like if someone is within 10, 20% of our range, that's where we can grow with those people. Mm. But if somebody is like years mm. beyond us, we can't grab onto anything they're doing. So it's too far yeah. out of this like range. It's a, it's a different process to learn from someone who's really far ahead of you like that. Yes. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, there's a whole strand of research on what is called near peer mentoring and teaching. So that's someone who's who's your peer, but a little bit ahead of you, one or two steps ahead of you. And that can be really ideal because they do know more than you do, but they were recently in your shoes. They were in your shoes recently enough that they know how that feels and they can explain it to you because it's still fresh in their own minds. They can pull you up a little bit. One time yes. that was a line said by Barack Obama. He said, if you can't look, if you're in a position and you don't bring people up, you shouldn't be there. I'm butchering his quote, but <laughs> if someone like it's nice I think to I pull. get the gist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's good to pull people with you in some form. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. That's right. Now, separate from the content, what are some challenges 
you have had in, um, let's say, recent times in relation to creativity and or writing? What are difficulties in this space that mm. are uh, challenging or have countered your ability to think and mm. accumulate uh, mm. thoughts in writing? That's a good question. I mean, I think with this project in particular, there was just so much information, so many studies to pull together and synthesize and try to convey to readers in a way that was interesting and compelling. That was the big challenge. And I had to use all of the techniques of that I write about in the extended mind to kind of make it happen. If I just tried to do it in my own head, I think my brain would have exploded. <laughs> um, so, you know, I did a lot of offloading. I did a lot of um, what I was telling you about earlier in terms of turning ideas into objects. And, you know, what I didn't get to say at that time was that once we turn ideas and information into um, objects that we can manipulate and move around, we, if, if, if we do it on a big enough scale, like say a, a, the big wall where I, I have rearra rearranged all my, um, my post-it notes, we can actually bring into use our navigational skills. You know, one thing that the brain is really good at is um, navigating through space. And we remember where things are. We have a very, humans have a very robust kind of spatial memory and we have peripheral vision, which allows us to kind of see the whole informational scene, which we can't do when we're just looking at our laptop screen or even, you know, our, our smartphone screen. So we can actually bring in these embodied resources of like moving through the informational landscape in a way that we can't, we certainly can't when we're, um, when we just have it um, uh, in our heads, but uh, is we're, we're limited in, in how well we can do that even when we're looking at a small space like a piece of paper or a, or a screen. So going big is actually a, can be really a really effective way to enhance your thinking. I like the concept and also that it relates to the themes are connected with higher bandwidth. Mm. All these mm. are using up way more of what we already are built with. Mm. Than letting it not be used if we mm -hmm. are already let's say walking and then we take in nature and then we're moving and then we contact somebody and our thoughts come into play and then we there's so much more it's, it's higher bandwidth versus like the lowest bandwidth thing on earth right now is a, clicking a like on social media which is like a one bit <laughs> a one yes <laughs> click yes click that's right the there. right that's right yeah. And it's, it's, I, again, I think this is really about our nature as human beings and the nature of, of how human thought works. And it just turns out that our thinking processes, they benefit from making loops, you know, out of the head, into the world, into space, into the minds of other people, you know, into our bodies and then back into the brain. And that seems that process of looping seems to enhance our thinking in a way that, you know, for a computer, and this is a very common metaphor, people tend to think they equate the brain with a computer. And that's actually a very flawed metaphor. And this is one reason why that a computer has no need to run those kinds of loops, but the human thinking machine, you know, the brain really seems to benefit from this external, um, these external influences. Connected to the external influences, what's the value of limitation in creation? Oh, wow. Well, what I think of 
immediately is what is known in psychology as desirable difficulties, which are, um, you know, when you, when learning, if things are, are too easy, too fluent, we don't um, tend to remember them. We actually have to work, put some mental effort into um, learning and remembering something in order to retain it. Um, but I think you were asking in a bigger sense about limitations and you know, that you, we, you, you, you mentioned at the beginning of our interview that I'm a science writer. And I think one reason I like being a science writer and I'm not say a fiction writer is that I don't even know where I would begin if I were a novelist and I could make everything up. You know, I like having the grounding of like, well, I'm not, I can't write about a study and I can't make facts up about a study. I have to report what's there, but of course you can the way you present that information, the way you combine it with other information, that is an incredibly interesting challenge. And, and I just, without the, the limits imposed by my professional code as a journalist, um, I don't, I, I, I admire journal, I admire novelists and people who write fiction, but I don't think I could do it. I need the, I need the limitations of fact. That's a cool way to think about it. I didn't think about it that way in relation to fiction. I'm going to keep mm -hmm. that one in mind. <laughs> My last question to you is if you had a message to all people on the planet about what you would want them to know or take away from this book, which I am gesturing <laughs> forward in the video, The Extended yes. Mind, what would that be? I would want people to know that as much as we're told that the brain is this amazing, extraordinary organ, um, it, it actually, in truth, is quite limited. It's, it's limited as a biological evolved um, organ. And if your brain is not working as well as you think it should, if it's not this incredible, all purpose, all powerful thinking machine, it's not because you got like a bum brain, <laughs> you know, these limits are common to everyone's brains. They're common to all humans on the planet. And the way we transcend them is, by, is not by working our brains ever harder, but by bringing in these outside the brain resources. And the more skillful you are at doing that, and that's that's a skill that can be learned, then the better you'll think, the better you'll you'll learn, the better you'll create. And that's that's the message I'd love to leave people with. That is cool. It does a lot of thinking, but it's not the unlimited right. unstoppable machine, right? No, it's not all that. <laughs> Annie, I would like to thank you for having joined on this episode of the show. Thank you. This has been really fun, Armin. I really enjoyed talking with you. I agree. And we are out. 